So last week, for those of you who were here on Easter, it was a really lovely Easter. Uh, first time we got to celebrate it properly in a couple years since the pandemic had started. Uh, we're able to meet in the sanctuary and actually fill out the sanctuaries. We rec- uh, welcomed Resurrection Park Slope to meet with us as well. Uh, really beautiful Sunday and had a big feast on the lawn afterwards. It was really great. And so thank you for everyone who participated in that, uh, in that joyous occasion. And here as we continue through Easter, we're going to look at these resurrection appearances of Jesus. And I'm going to read our passage for us kind of throughout the sermon. Uh, but one, there was one moment last week as I was preaching, I got a few... Um, I think they were not laughing at me. I think they were laughing with me. But I got a few chuckles that were unexpected. When I described God and Jesus specifically in these passages as kind of playful, like this, this playful uh, God person that is designing fun hijinks and leaving clues and surprising people with cliffhangers and plot twists. Uh, and as we hear this passage, there is a sense in which it's kind of serious on the, on the first time you hear it. It's weighty. It's got substance and meaning and purpose. And yet I still want us to see the spirit of playfulness that is underneath and throughout it all. There's a levity to it, a kind of humble confidence on the part of Jesus. It's almost as if he's interacting with them from a new and indestructible dimension. And he is. Christianity calls that dimension resurrection. Or Jesus calls it the kingdom of God. In this passage, it shows up with the word shalom. And I want you to hear as we read it and consider this passage this morning, to be or to become a follower of Christ is to, in some sense, to enter into this dimension that Jesus lives in. Even if we're only dimly aware of it at times, to enter into it and to attempt to live our lives here in this world, in this body, from another center, another source, of life that enables us to see the world we live in differently, to live in it differently, to participate in new ways of transformation through taking up this pattern of death and resurrection in our life. We might call this way of living purpose or mission. We learn that we are God's mission, that people are his mission, and as we begin to live in this dimension and learn this serious and yet playful God-man, Jesus, that he transforms us to transform others, to move us from disbelief and doubt to belief, from death to life, from fear to shalom. So let me read you the first part of this passage. This is the first Easter Sunday that they're describing. On the evening of that day, The first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. I want you to hear, I've been talking about this a lot for those of you who are new to our congregation or joining us as visitors this morning. 
uh, really a lot this last year about this concept of shalom, which I more and more find to be one of the central concepts of the entire Old and New Testament. This idea that God created everything you see and everything that, we, that exists for perfect flourishing, uh, for sort of a, a dance one with another where the creation serves human beings and God and human beings serve God and the creation, where God loves to give himself and his life away to his creatures, to his people and to his creation, where there's this give and forth and this flow and everybody has enough and nothing is harmed and all is beautiful and fruitful. This is the idea of shalom. And anytime you see the word peace, in the scriptures, you should pretty much just interpret it shalom. It doesn't just mean, oh, I feel calm, although that would be included. It would be swallowed up in something much greater and bigger. This idea of universal flourishing where everyone and everything fits in its right place. Jesus comes on this mission to them, and you might call it a mission of bringing peace. Mission peaceable if you want to be cheesy, right? He's coming to bring peace and shalom to people. And I want you to just hear as we get into this, this is what we were designed for. This is what God made us for. This is what we are destined for. And this is what he's trying to give back to us. And you do not get shalom. You do not get well-being, a sense of being, uh, having purpose, of fitting in the created order and with people and with God and everything just being right. You don't get that through the strength of your own faith or belief. We're going to unpack this in a second, but the disciples are there not believing. They're locked in a room for fear of the Jews. The women have come and told them about this Jesus rising from the dead that morning, and they are not sure they believe it, so they go lock themselves in a room and hide. It wasn't the strength of their faith that got them into shalom. It is the surprising, plot-twisting, showing up of Jesus, saying to them, first words, not, how dare you not believe? Man, I've been watching you your moral purity has a long ways to go before I can deal with you. None of these things does he say. He shows up and he says, shalom be with you. And they touch his hands and his side where his wounds are, realizing it really is him, the one that they had watched crucified, died, and buried. And as soon as their eyes are open to see this man from a new dimension, from the future, from the resurrection, they're with them in his flesh, like theirs and yet transfigured, transformed, he says to them again, now you see, shalom be with you. See, we are brought into God's shalom in order that we might begin to spread it. He says, I'm going to send you out on a mission, and this mission is going to be to bring shalom and peace to people. To get to shalom first, though, we have a little more work to do, even from this passage. To get to the place where they're out in the world giving their lives for the sake of others to know the peace and the power of God, they had still some movement to make in their faith. And I want us to walk through that. To move from your natural certainty about the way that the world is and what's right and what's wrong and how you fit in it and the way things are. To move from a natural, unreflective certainty about these things and begin to doubt that what you think what you're so certain of, and what you touch and taste, and what you can see is, is the definitive explanation of all things, and nothing else can break in, to, to begin to doubt your own beliefs, your own certainty, to let doubt in, but then to move through doubt into a living faith. We see it a little more as the passage goes on. 
Because Thomas, this is verse 24, one of the 12 disciples called the twin, he was not with them in that room when Jesus came. So later the other disciples told him, I'm actually reading the scriptures right now. They told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Now, Thomas does get a bad rap. I mean, think about it. This is one moment, and for the rest of history and all the hymns and everywhere else, he's known as Doubting Thomas, right? The fact is, all the rest of the disciples were doubting too. You know, they're in the room doubting, hiding. And I think in some ways we could flip the script a little bit that we're actually to learn from Thomas here, that it's not just uh, that doubting was a bad thing, but in some sense, he is a model of the move forward, the way to go. See, for us, doubting has become cool in the last 100 years or so. Anything that looks like blind faith, not so cool. But if you think about it, all of us doubt. All of us doubt all sorts of things. We doubt the news. We doubt the word from a neighbor across the street. We doubt that things could get better. We doubt, perhaps, that God is real or that he's near or that he's involved or that he cares. None of us have the kind of scientific certainty that our world requires for everything to work. We don't have that in our hands, a kind of unshakable certainty. I can just show you God right here in this way, and here he is. And when that's true, there's two default options that we can fall into. One is to doubt everything, to never commit to anything. This is what G.K. Chesterton said about it. It's the new orthodoxy that a man man may be uncertain of everything so long as he is not certain of anything. This is to always keep an open mind and to just be like, ah, no, whatever, to each his own, whatever. I'm not sure any of these things are true. The other option we have is to perhaps try to suppress doubt or the doubts of others or the complexity or the difficulty or the mystery of faith and life. This leads to things like rigorous policing of belief, you know, making sure people just get all their T's crossed and their I's dotted. It leads to this dismissal of any other people who might have a nuanced opinion or a different a different way of looking at things that challenges yours. It's to silence all questions. But what if there's another way that is more nuanced and life-giving to think about our doubt? To understand that all of our model Christians in this passage doubted, all of the disciples, including Thomas. None of them were originally in their natural state believing. They're all doubting disciples. And if you think about it, they should be. In the whole history of the world, has anyone ever heard of a resurrection from the dead? No. We would be gullible if we accepted it blindly. They all doubted until they personally saw Jesus and experienced his presence. So let me just say to you, if you are a Christian and you never have doubts or questions about your faith, you're probably not thinking seriously enough about it. I think Thomas is a bit of a model here. Doubt is a necessary, even complementary component of what it means to have a living faith rather than a dead faith. A dead faith that you can just print out and hang on the wall, and you're like, there's my faith. See, as long as you agree with everything up there, well, that's just a piece of paper and some stuff printed on the wall. 
But a living faith that is alive, it often takes doubt to come in and to keep us moving, to dig, to chisel, to challenge, so that we go deeper with our faith and in our relationship. Without doubt, we tend to never question our assumptions, and we tend to get stuck and to become stagnant in our faith. Some of you have heard me say this a lot recently, but I loved learning that the word arrogant comes from the Latin aroga, which means I have no questions. To live the kind of life where you don't have any questions. I know everything. I know the answers to all of it. See, many great faiths throughout history, the ones that we think are the models of faith, in fact, the people that some parts of the church have called saints, almost always wrote profoundly about seasons and even aspects of their entire life of faith that were intimately conversant with doubt. You may have read about Mother Teresa that after she died, portions of a letter she wrote to her spiritual director were released to the public. And in them, it became clear that she endured decades of doubt. She wrote things in her letters like, darkness is such that I really don't even see, neither with my mind nor with my reason. The place of God in my soul is blank. There is no God in me. See, people of immense, deep, abiding, and quiet faith often suffer seasons of great doubt. And it is even through this, as they persevere and hang on and search for the Jesus who comes with the word of shalom to them again and again, examining who he is and how he's different than they expected. He could be here in the flesh. He could still have wounds, and yet they'd be healed. I could touch them. For us to continually be surprised by this Jesus is how our faith grows. To go deeper and deeper. See, Thomas the Apostle, I think, is not meant to just be a poster boy of doing the wrong thing. I don't think Jesus showed up and talked to him because he wanted to shame him. But instead, because in so many ways, we are like Thomas. And at even one further step, removed. I'm going to read the passage the end of the passage, but I just want to say this as we move into it. Doubt then, in its initial form, in the form that God uses it, is kind of akin to the idea of death. It is meant to come and purify, to purge, to prune those false certainties, the stagnant parts of our life and faith. But it's not meant to just tear down. It's meant to do that so that in that place of doubt, God can come and bring new life. So that we don't sit in our doubt forever and ever and just say that's all there is to say about the world, but to allow it to come, challenge our false certainties and our simple confidence and our boredom with God, to get it down to its deepest roots and then to let God, the God of new life, come. Because ultimately what we get when we allow doubt, we have doubt, when we allow ourselves to actually pay attention to it and bring it before God, to say, well, God, I need something more from you. I need you to come and show me. What we get is not just new facts 
new new dogmas, new certainties, what we get is more of the person and presence of the risen Jesus. Not just new ideas, but a new power, a new presence, a new person. Not God as we expected him, perhaps, but the God who comes to bring life in his love to us. See, in their doubt, given before Jesus, they then encountered a risen Lord and they were giving a living faith, a faith in a new kind of life, this life that they discovered in Jesus. I'll read it to you. Eight days later, it's a long time to wait for Thomas, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now the gospel writer John closes his book with this, or this section. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by your believing, you may have life in his name. See, Jesus' work here, his mission of transformation is he shows up with a message and an experience and the presence of peace and shalom to them, coming with good intentions and power and love to transform. His work is to move people from postures and places of false certainty into a new reality where they're discombobulated, confused. Something is bigger and new, more than they can imagine. And now they doubt what they thought just a minute ago. And they're open. They have questions. And then to move through that doubt, because once he shows up and says, go ahead, touch. Go ahead, feel. Now you need to move not into a place of disbelief. Don't disbelieve. You're touching me. You're hearing me. You're seeing me. Don't disbelieve now. Now you move to belief. Now you believe, you move to trust. And if you do, you will have life in his name. He says, I come to bring life and to bring it abundantly. This is what his mission is. See, belief in the resurrection doesn't come easily. It never has. It didn't for them, even though they could see him. It doesn't for us now, especially when you scroll the news or you get the notifications. You live your life. You have disappointment after disappointment. How could you continue to believe that resurrection is the ultimate reality, that new life is coming from another dimension into this one to build a kingdom in the midst of the kingdom of the world? See, Jesus meets us in the middle of our doubts. He speaks words of peace and comfort. He understands, but he wants us to move through our doubts into belief that we might experience fuller, richer life, resurrection life. 
a sense of well-being that no matter what is happening in the world, even if it feels like the world is going to hell in a handbasket in a hurry, you can have a sense of well-being and peace because you know the resurrection life. You know that he has brought into history this beginning that can't be stopped and is the end to which we are headed. And what he means by belief here is not yet for a couple hundred years a creed or any of those things. It is in that moment to put their personal trust and love in him. It's to be loyal to him, to say, I, to you, Jesus, this man that I knew, that now Thomas, for the first time in the gospel, says, not just my Lord, which can also mean sir or my, my, uh, the person over me in ranking, but my God, my Lord and my God. I entrust myself to you. That's what faith and belief means at this moment, to trust Jesus, even though they don't know where he's going. They said they're going to send you places. You're going to bring forgiveness and shalom. If you know the story, all these disciples would go out around the whole world. Thomas would end up himself in India. And I just want to ask you as you think about this in reflection for yourself. By believing you are meant to have life and shalom, is that what you think Christianity is all about? It's about abundant life? It's about well-being? It's about shalom? Is that what you think? Is that the message that our friends and neighbors hear from Christianity in the public sphere? Is it the one that you take home? Are you just trying to have moral perfection so he can finally accept you? Uh, Do you think it's just about something that happens to you after you die, like fire insurance? Or do you think that the gospel is largely about you having life in his name? Notice that the crucifixion, that we spent a lot of time, the cross of Christ, is just a small chapter or so at the end of the gospel. Even the resurrection accounts are just a couple little chapters. All that came before that 19 chapters is about Jesus' life, what it meant to live a full, rich human life in service to God and the world. This is what you were meant for, to live the life of Jesus, the life he lived out on our shores and our streets in our beds with our sicknesses, suffering our temptations, experiencing our limitations, but to do it in a uniquely life-giving, sacrificial, death and resurrection, shalom way. That is where we are headed. That is where we get to experience him. And notice that he sends them out as now his eyewitnesses, his body the body of Christ. And so, even though you have not perhaps seen the risen Christ and been able to touch his wounds, they went out, and everyone outside, after Jesus ascended, everyone in the history of the world who's ever believed, and there are billions upon billions of them, believed, and Jesus said, it is blessed if you believe and haven't seen, they believed by what? Touching, tasting, hearing, and receiving real human beings like you and me who had been shalomed, who had been given new life and lived out the life and love of God in new ways in the world. And it was so beautiful that it gave people just a dim glimpse. It gave them a little bit of a hearing. It gave them a little bit of the aroma of Christ. And it was just enough that we believe and we begin to experience life as well. Absolute certainty is not what we are meant for, but life is. Life and love and shalom. 
And so we pray that you would have it. I'll close with this story. There was a Jesuit philosopher named John Cavanaugh. And in 1975, he went to work for three months at what was called the House of the Dying in Calcutta with Mother Teresa. He was searching for an answer about how best to spend the remaining years of his life. On his very first morning there, he met Mother Teresa. And she asked him, what can I do for you? And Kavanaugh asked her to pray for him. She said, what do you want me to pray for? He answered with the request that was the very reason he had traveled thousands of miles to India. The thing he was certain that he needed more than anything in the world to be able to have well-being. And it was this. He said, pray that I will have clarity, you might say certainty, about my future and what I should do. Mother Teresa said firmly, no, I will not do that. When he said, why? She said, clarity is the last thing that you are clinging to and you need to let go of it. When Kavanaugh said, you always seem to have clarity though, she laughed and said, I have never had clarity. What I have always had is trust. So I will pray that you trust God. This God of beauty and hijinks and mystery and fun and life. May you believe in him today. And by believing, may you have life in his name. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.